Thank you so much. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. You'd be glad to know in the first service, I set my timer for four hours, 30 minutes, but I've corrected it for this service. So you'd be glad about that. Uh, really, really, really good to see you and uh, happy gift day. Happy Gift Sunday. It's a good day to be alive. Hope you're excited. I am. And uh, looking forward to uh, just sharing the Word of God with you uh, for a few moments together. Uh, before we do, I had this great story this week from another church leader who was uh, just, we were sh- taking a time to share some celebrations and breakthroughs. And uh, this guy shared a story of a friend who'd come to him and said, uh, could you join with me and pray for my friend because he's got stage four blood cancer. And uh, he is, uh, he, they, they've kind of given up hope in terms of treatment. And unless God does something, then this guy, uh, it, it's the end for him. Please, will you join with me and pray? And uh, he said, to be honest, I didn't really feel like praying. <laughs> he said, but because she was my friend, I thought, let's get together and pray. And so he said they got together, they began to pray. And as they were praying, he saw this image in his mind's eye of this guy getting off his hospital bed and standing upright. And so he just said to his friend, he said, I've just seen this image of this guy getting up and standing upright. And so he said, I declare in the name of Jesus, this will not end in death. And they began to just release the healing power of God over this guy's friend. And he then said he didn't find out the end of the story for several, uh, several months later. And he found his friend. He said, did anything happen? And he said, you'll never guess what. In the days after we prayed, this guy was completely healed of stage four blood cancer. And... Uh, was, was back playing football in his football team and, and everything. It was just a remarkable, remarkable story. I just think we need to keep going after impossible things. So the stories that we share from this stage or in our lives or in our, in our mission community groups, they should celebrate both the natural but also the impossible. We should be celebrating the things that could only happen if God takes center stage. And so I just want to encourage us to keep going after those stories, keep asking God to break in in those kind of ways. And in the next coming months and over Christmas as well and after Christmas, we're starting a brand new preaching series called Greater Things, which is all about how God was moving in the book of Acts in the Bible. Now, just wave at me if you've ever read the book of Acts. Okay. Book of Acts is hands down probably my favorite book in the whole of the Bible because it is just an exhilarating story of what happens when God takes center stage in a community. And it's the story really that picks up straight after the resurrection of Jesus and details the account of what happened in the life of the early church. And in many ways is the story of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus and his victory in the people of God. And it was written by a doctor, Dr. Luke, who also wrote Luke's gospel. And Luke and Acts together make up 28% of your New Testament. And Dr. Luke is known for his uh, very, very precise Greek language. He's one of the best writers of Greek, apparently, in the New Testament. His language is very detailed. He's very interested in history. He paints a real brilliant picture, particularly of how the gospel reaches outside of the Jewish world and into the Gentile, the non-Jewish world. And he is a brilliant, brilliant writer. And it was written about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And Luke himself was a companion and a, a one who lived through the days of the early church. Much of what he wrote was eyewitness account of what he saw firsthand. So can I encourage you as we get into this series, read the book of Acts again. Maybe just in your own time at home, just get yourself familiar with this incredible story. And for those of you that aren't, here is a three-minute 
catch-up of the Book of Acts. Let's dim the lights and go for the video. In my former video, Theophilus, I explained the life of Christ in three minutes. Now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. After being crucified, Jesus comes back to life and hangs out with the apostles. He tells them that they will receive the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses. Jesus takes off. The disciples are gathered together on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrives. Tongues of fire hover over them, hence the logo. The disciples speak in tongues. Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people get saved. God, one. Satan, zero. The end of Acts chapter 2 is written, providing mission statements for churches in the 21st century. Peter heals a lame man and preaches another sermon. Another 2,000 people get saved. Peter and John are thrown in jail. They are released. Peter and John celebrate with the other believers and pray for continued boldness. God rocks the house, literally. Ananias and Sapphira lie about their offering to the church and are struck dead. Contributions skyrocket. The apostles preach again. They are thrown in jail again. An angel releases them. They preach some more. The apostles nominate seven deacons to look after widows and orphans, including Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Stephen is stoned. Present at the stoning is a young man named Saul. We'll come back to that later. Persecution breaks out, believers scatter, things look bad for the church. Or do they? Wherever the believers go, they preach the word, thus fulfilling the Great Commission. God to Satan still zero. Philip meets a eunuch, the eunuch is baptized. Meanwhile, Saul is on his way to persecute believers in Damascus when Jesus appears. Saul is blinded, Saul is healed. Saul repents and begins preaching to the same people he intended to persecute. God three, Satan, well, you get the idea. Peter has a vision of unclean animals. Peter has an encounter with unclean Gentiles. He gets it. God has extended salvation to the Gentiles. Major game changer. Herod is eaten by worms. Barnabas and Paul start working together, traveling and preaching the word. By the way, I'm going to call Saul Paul now. I don't have time to explain why. Still with me? In Lystra, crowds attempt to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. They refuse to be worshipped and are stoned. The Lystrians are a tough crowd. Paul and Barnabas survive. Paul and Barnabas part ways. Paul and Silas team up. Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Paul circumcises Timothy. Paul receives a vision of a man from Macedonia asking for help. The party leaves for Macedonia. Spoiler alert, they are thrown in prison yet again. They sing. An earthquake loosens their shackles, but they stick around to lead the jailer to Christ. Yada, 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 more preaching. In Troas, Paul preaches for so long that a man falls asleep and plummets out a window to his death. The man is resurrected. Paul preaches some more. The man wishes he was dead. Paul returns to Jerusalem, where he is promptly arrested again. He is visited by the Lord, who assures him that Paul will testify about him in Rome. Paul feels better. Paul is transferred to Caesarea, where his case is caught up in red tape for two years. Finally, Paul appeals to Caesar and is put on a fast ship to Rome. The shipwrecks. Paul is bitten by a snake. At last, Paul makes it to Rome. He is placed under house arrest and continues to preach the gospel while awaiting trial. And that is all we know of Paul's story. Somewhere in there, he finds the time to write a few letters. Today, they comprise much of the New Testament. The New Testament is also where you'll find the book of Acts. The end. Brilliant. <clears throat> All right, so here are three major themes in the book of Acts, and then we're going to dive into the specific issue of giving in the book of Acts uh, before we give a little bit later on in the service. So three themes of the book of Acts. Number one, Jesus really is the king. That's the first theme of the book of Acts, and the story of Acts demonstrates that Jesus really is alive. And in fact, it's one of the greatest evidences that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that this bunch of nobodies suddenly begins to change the world. Because suddenly Jesus is enthroned as King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And the, the book of Acts was written in a, a, a time of history where Caesar, who is the emperor of Rome, was declared to be the Lord of lords and the King of kings, Lord of the known empire. 
And Caesar really took on the nature and the characteristics of divinity. People worshipped Caesar as God. And yet in this context, the book of Acts tells us there is only one true king and his name is Jesus and his kingdom is breaking out across the world. That is the first theme of Acts. Jesus really is alive. And I remember the very first miracle I saw with my own eyes. I was about 10 years old and I I saw a man's leg being prayed for. It was uh, just several inches shorter than the other one. And before my eyes, I saw one leg grow out until it matched the other. And it was just this stunning, stunning miracle. And I remember going home as a 10-year-old and just saying to my mum and dad, Jesus is alive. He's actually alive. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. He's doing stuff. And you know, when people step foot in the church, that should be their reaction. They should step foot amongst the, the people of God and say, what the heck is this? Jesus really is alive. And that is the story of Acts. Jesus is alive. He is the king. Second theme of Acts, God uses weak people. <laughs> Amen. Can I hear a hallelujah at that moment? God uses weak people. Acts is not the story of superstars or superheroes. There, there are notable figures like Paul and James and John and Peter, characters, but they are not superstars. In fact, these are weak people just like you or I, and yet people that God came on by his spirit and transformed them. I mean, you've you got to understand, these guys, before the Holy Spirit filled them, that they were the guys who abandoned Jesus at the cross, wanted to call down fire on their enemies. Peter was busy cutting ears off with his sword. I mean, Peter, even at one point, got the nickname Satan from Jesus. That is not a good day at the office if you're a disciple. These guys were not heroes. They were weaklings. They were full of frailty. And yet suddenly, when God comes on them, they get transformed into courageous men and women of God. The story of Acts tells us God chooses the weak to shame the strong. Halle, jolly, luyah. That's the story of Acts. The third story of Acts is this, is that 30 years really can change the world. If you read the book of Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 28, it covers roughly a 30-year period of time. So in fact, if you read one chapter of Acts, it's roughly the equivalent of one year taking place. And by by chapter 28, Christianity has gone from a a small enclave of 120 believers who are hiding in an upper room to literally reaching the heart of the Roman Empire. And suddenly, the Christian faith has started to spread around the world, into Cyprus, into Greece, into the major capitals of the world at the time. 30 years really can change the world for people who obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. See, Scripture, when it talks about a generation, a generation is literally a 30-year period. So when you read in Scripture, one generation will commend your works to the next. It's thinking in 30-year blocks. Acts tells us within one generation, the world can actually be changed. And that's why Acts is both a history book but also an invitation card. It's, it's, it's a launch pad, not a destination. And that's why the last sermon in this series is called Acts 29, because the best is yet to come. Greater things are still to come. And so as you read the book of Acts, take this not just as a great history lesson, but as an invitation of what's possible for people who truly say yes to Jesus. I am so looking forward to this series. I'm preaching myself happy right now. So this is good. So... So let's dive into one specific issue that we see occurring in the book of Acts, and that is the radical generosity of the early church. 
That's Jesus calling on the telephone. You better answer just in case. Jesus does something so significant in the life of the early church that radical generosity is the norm. And we see this popping up all over the place. And we'll pick up one story in Acts chapter 11 and verse 22. And the the context for this particular passage is that the disciples and the apostles in Jerusalem, where really the Christian faith has predominantly been been, uh, kind of residing, hear about the grace of God being poured out in Antioch, which is far away from Jerusalem. And so they send some of their buddies to go and check it out. And this is what we read. Verse 22, chapter 11. News of this reached the church in, Ant- in, J- in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. The disciples, as each one was able, just remember that phrase, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is One example in the early church in Acts of how radical generosity became the norm. And if you get one thought from this morning, I want it to be this. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Just say that again. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. (laughs) Giving is the natural byproduct of being in love. You ever notice how easy it is to give to somebody else when you're in love with them? That's because giving is the overflow of the heart. The reality is, we give for many, many reasons. Many of us in this room will have given to various different causes or charities or even the church sometimes for many motivations other than love. Sometimes we give out of guilt. We give just because we feel bad. Oh gosh, everyone else is giving, I better join in. And, you know, the motivation isn't really love. If we're honest, sometimes it can be guilt. I mean, how many of you sometimes when people knock at your door and start kind of raising money for charity? I mean, I I used to be just a super softy when it came to any good cause that came to my door. You know, and most of the time it wasn't because I loved the cause. You know, we're we're collecting for stray cats in Mogadishu. (laughs) Awesome. I'd love to support that. Thank you. Take my money, please. Here's my bank details. But the, tr- the, the thing was, often the day after, I would cancel <laughs> that direct debit. Why? Because I didn't really love that. I was given it a guilt. And sometimes we do that. We give just because we feel bad. Sometimes we give because we want to be seen as a good giver. We want a good reputation. We maybe want to increase our sense of influence. We maybe give to salve our own conscience sometimes. We think, oh, I'll just give a couple of quid, you know, Whew, then I've done my part. You know, no one's going to hassle me. There are all sorts of reasons why we give, and not all of them have much to do with love all the time. But actually, the truth is, when you are radically in love with Jesus, giving is just the overflow. It's the overflow of the heart, which is what Jesus really cares about. And in Acts, we just get this picture of these cheerful, radical, generous givers, because they're in love with the Savior. When you get in love with the Savior, you cannot help 
but live a radically generous lifestyle. And for the early believers, that meant a radical use of their time, of their hospitality, of their gifts, sometimes literally laying down their own lives because they were in love. And it certainly included their money and their possessions. Acts chapter 4 says, none of them, none of them uh, there were no needy persons among them. Isn't that incredible description. There were no needy persons among them. Isn't it incredible that we can give to buy the night shelter? We are living acts by doing that. No needy persons among them. They gave out the overflow of love. You know, I remember a few years ago in in our house, in the lead up to Christmas, Lauren, my daughter, she just began to really catch God's heart for the poor in a way that we'd never seen before and she just couldn't get the poor out of her head and when she was praying she was just feeling overwhelmed with her love to meet the needs of those who didn't have much and so she came to us one day before Christmas she said listen I don't want any Christmas presents this year I want you to give whatever you are going to spend on me I want to give it to the poor in some way I was like wow that's amazing I feel so challenged by that because I'd never done that up to that point and she's like I just want to give it away So we're like, okay, if you're sure. So we gave her the money and we began to buy things and kind of distribute them. And then even on Christmas Day itself, she's like, please, can we go out in the car and see if there's anyone who's on the streets that we can just bless and love? So remember, we got in the car, we drove around Bedford and with gifts in the car, ready to give. I mean, testament to our project, we didn't find a single homeless person on the streets that particular day. Praise the Lord. But we went looking for them. And uh, that particular Christmas as well, she invited one of her friends to our home for Christmas Day who was going to be outside her family, and she shared Christmas with us. And I just remember being so profoundly challenged because what was happening here, it was the overflow of love. She wasn't feeling compelled. She wasn't feeling coerced. She wasn't giving because she felt guilty. She just caught the love of God, and therefore it's the most natural thing in the world to give. And that's why Jesus said, when you find your treasure, you'll find your heart. You find what you spend your money, what you're willing to sacrifice on. You find what you truly love in this world. It's challenging. And that's why money so often is a mirror to us. It's something that introduces us to ourselves. Just like, you know, adversity introduces a man to himself, your money also introduces you to yourself. It shows you where your treasure really is. How is my love doing? Is my love switched on to him? Because if it is, my money will follow. It's natural. That's the story of the early church. Radical generosity is very normal for people who are head over heels in love. And you know, as we look into this particular story, we see two elements of how this love and generosity flow together. And the first is this. We see that generosity flows from a love of the gospel of grace. It says that when Barnabas went from Jerusalem to Antioch, he found evidence of the grace of God. That's what it says. It's like he looked into the community. He had a little sniff around. (laughs) Yep, this smells like the grace of God. (laughs) This smells like a community that understands the undeserved favor of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it smells like. I hope that when people come in here, they smell the grace of God. And that's what Barnabas could smell in the atmosphere, the feel of the room when he went to Antioch. There was something that God had done in their hearts that they were so overwhelmed with the grace of God at the cross that giving was one of the natural overflows. They were in love with the gospel of grace. And that's where radical generosity really is rooted. It's rooted in a revelation 
that God has been gracious to you. God has been gracious to you. Paul, when he's writing about another community in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he begins to boast about the Macedonian Christians. And I won't read the whole passage, but in this passage, he starts to boast about the incredible, rich generosity of the Macedonians. And it says, listen, they, they were poor. They had hardly two beans to rub together. And yet out of their poverty, rich generosity welled up. And they pleaded with the privilege of sharing in giving to the saints. And he said, they gave far beyond their ability. And what they gave exceeded expectations. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to say about us after these gift days? It exceeded our expectations. I think so. And Paul lands in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 and he says this is how they could give in that way. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. In other words, giving is all about the grace of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, when you don't have any desire to give, it shows that you haven't really understood the grace of God in the gospel. You haven't understood the grace of God in the gospel. Because it says, listen, they were, they were pleading to be at the gift day. Please do the gift day when I can be there. I don't want to miss out. I want the privilege of being able to give because Jesus gave up everything for me. Do you see the connection? Radical outpouring. Oh, of course I want to give. I'm in love. Because Jesus gave everything for me. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that through your poverty, he, you might become rich. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you see that? There's that love-giving connection again. He so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That is the gospel. And when you get the gospel, your money naturally follows, and it begins to reflect that. You see, when we give our pounds and our pence, that is really about that. Our money, our giving is really about the cross. It's really about grace. It's really about the nature and the character of God. And there is something about us living radically generous lives that points to him and says, this is what he is like. And this is what he has done. It's about the gospel and a love for him. I love this little story that someone wrote in a devoted card. It said, we're preparing to move to another location and we've been saving money like crazy. But one day we felt prompted to give away a whole jar of cash, hundreds of pounds. We put it in an envelope and we gave it away. Three hours later, we got an envelope filled with cash given four times the amount than we gave. Isn't that incredible? Let me tell you, that is about the gospel. That is about the grace of God. That speaks about that. It speaks about what he does in our lives. It's a reflection of grace. You see, sometimes we are asking the wrong questions about money that the early church was never asking. Sometimes we sit here and we're asking the questions of, well, should I really tithe? I mean, surely that's Old Testament. Surely I'm not bound to that anymore. Well, no, you're not, but you're asking the wrong question. The question is, how can my giving reflect the gospel? 
How can my giving reflect the radical nature of God's generosity? That's the right question to ask. And I don't care if that's five pounds, a button on your coat, or a million quid. How does your giving reflect the radical generosity of God himself? That's the right question. Ask that question of your life. Is my life radically generous like the gospel that I've received? Though he was rich, he became poor. That's the right question. And that's why, you know, actually in our lives, we've discovered the great power of regular giving, but also radical giving. Both are principles in our lives. You know, I, I, had a, I nearly did a jig in my study this week because I counted up how much money I've been able to give since I started tithing. I started giving 10% of my income away the day I started full-time employment many years ago. And uh, so I did a quick count up. Do you know, I've given over 60,000 pounds away since I started full-time employment. Now, I've never been able to give a lump sum of that much away ever in one hit. But over the course of years, I've been able to sow that into the kingdom. Jesus said, listen, put your treasure where your heart is. Sow where moth and rust cannot destroy. I tell you, there is 60,000 pounds put away where moth and rust cannot destroy. And it's storing up a reward for me in heavenly places. That didn't come because I'm rich. It came just because I gave little and often as I could. That is, that is so important. But also it's that radical giving. These kind of moments where you think, what does radical generosity look like today? How can I reflect the gospel? That's the right question to be asking. Second thing we see in this passage is this connection between radical generosity and a love of partnering with the Father for breakthrough. There's something about these Christians in Antioch that they had got a hold of this truth. We, we are not just kind of pawns on the side, but we are partners with the Father for breakthrough. There is a famine coming. We get to do something about that. I love that. I mean, it's like us saying, there are poor, homeless people in Bedford. We're going to do something about that. It's the difference between acting as powerless people and acting as powerful people. Do you understand that God does want to break through, but so often you are the answer to your own prayers. God, help the poor. Brilliant, I'm sending you. God, please send someone to give. Brilliant, I'm sending you. Send someone to love them. I'm sending you. You understand, often... You'll be the answer to your own prayers. <laughs> and the Christians in Antioch understood something about this. We are, we are partners in the Father's business. We get to reveal the Father by partnering with him. What he's doing, we're going to do. I'm going to do what he's doing. I'm going to put my hand in his. I'm going to trust him. And that's why what we do with our finances so often is the canvas on which we get revelation about who the Father really is. That's why Jesus, when he was teaching about money, he said, listen, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. You give in secret, and when your father sees what you give in secret, he will reward you. In other words, your reward is not in the praise of men. Your reward is in what the father says in secret. He rewards you. But there is a connection between your giving and your finding his fathering in your life. And see... What disables many of us from living a radically generous lifestyle with our money is that, if truth be told, we don't really trust that the Father will provide for us. How many of you know it's very difficult to truly represent someone you don't trust? It's difficult to represent someone that you don't really trust. And the reason you're on this planet is to show what the Father's like. And so we've got to learn to trust him with our money. That's the canvas God uses. 
give in secret. Your father knows your needs. He'll provide for you. Are you not more important than the birds in the air and, and, the, and the flowers in the field? Your father knows your needs. He knows them better than you do. Trust your father. He's a good, good father. He will take care of your needs. Just, just wave at me if you've ever given money in a radically obedient way and the father has looked after you. Just look around the room. Just keep your hand up. Just look around the room. That's the faithfulness of God on display in this room in life after life after life after life. You have a good, good father, and you get to partner with him. It's so exciting. And the Christians in Antioch had a love of doing this. I want to suggest to some of you that the breakthrough you need is not going to come through a healing prayer session, but it's going to come through radically giving your money away. Because, because sometimes it is the practical decisions of life that lead you into spiritual revelation. Sometimes we just have to believe things because God says it in his word. God, you said it. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to take a punt. I'm going to trust you. And so often then revelation begins to follow the practical obedience of our lives and our hearts. Can I encourage you, if you are in the valley of indecision and fear about money, if you've been here maybe years and you've still not given anything, can I encourage you, trust your father. Trust your father. He will take good care of you. I promise. He will take good care of you because that's what he is like. I told you this story recently that a few weeks ago we decided God had spoken to us about giving money away to a couple of people and uh, we'd got the cash out and we got the card, we'd written the card and uh, we'd put it on our, our dining room table and then the day after, before we'd had a chance to give it away yet, we locked ourselves out of our house <laughs> and no matter how much we tried, we couldn't get in so we had to call the locksmith out. The amount we had to pay him was the exact amount we had to get out of the bank that we were going to give away. Now, we had that moment of decision to make. Do we still obey the Holy Spirit and give this money, or do we pay the locksmith with the money? And we thought, well, we've got to do both. We've got to pay the locksmith and give this money away. Suddenly, our bill has doubled. But we're like, God said, he's going to look after us. And so we gave both. And then just this week, I didn't tell anyone the amount of, the amount of money that we gave away. Just this week, we got a card. It was a Christmas card because that's all they had in the closet. And they said, this is an early Christmas card. We felt prompted to give you some money. It was the exact amount for both the locksmith and what we'd given away to others. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> the truth is, you cannot outgive God. You cannot because you are a partner in the Father's business. You get to give, but then you also get to receive his fathering in your life. You are a partner with your heavenly father. And that's why today is going to be full of miracle stories as we give faithfully in obedience to God, but then also enjoy his fathering in our own lives. And you know, it's a very important principle that obedience often starts in the natural for which there are spiritual implications. 1 Corinthians 15, 46 says, first the natural, then the spiritual. Which means this, that sometimes our physical obedience has spiritual ramifications. The things that you do with material things actually are about bigger things than just material things. 
When you take obedience in things like money and time and what you watch and how you raise your family, these are important in and of themselves, but they actually create the ground for breakthrough in communities. They actually begin to partner with God's desire to release revival in a neighborhood. How many of you would love to see sick bodies get healed and hope restored and families get put back together and, 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 a, and a town and a nation begin to get rekindled in God? Well, let me tell you, that all starts by practical decisions in things like money. And, and God so often is saying, I love your desire for breakthrough. Let's start partnering together in the practical things. It's an invitation for revival when we release our money. When I give my money, there's something about that that is dislodging the prevailing spirit of greed and consumerism that we see all around us in our culture. There's something about me being a countercultural man that doesn't just do something in the natural, but does something in the spiritual. It says, greed has no hold on my life. It says, I am of a different kingdom. I am of a different spirit. I am of Jesus' kingdom. And my practical steps of obedience have spiritual ramifications. And that's why those who carry spiritual authority very often are the men and women who pray in secret, give in secret, fast in secret. Why? Because the Father sees it and he rewards them. And you know, one of the great challenges for a millennial generation, if you were born in the 1980s or the 1990s, a millennial generation, one of the great uh, strengths of a millennial generation is your desire for community. It's one of the things you see in people who are born in those years. There's real longing for genuine community. And, and, and in a culture of sound bites and social media, actually there's a deep longing for genuine friendships, to be known and to know. That is a huge strength. But a weakness is this, is that so often we're not willing to pay the cost that community requires. Because a millennial generation is more mobile than ever before, wants to go away on more holidays than ever before, wants to be away every other weekend than ever before, wants to spend money wherever I want to spend it before. And how many of you know you don't get community without the cost? You don't get to build deep, ongoing friendships unless you're around. And sometimes we've got to sacrifice something for a greater good. We've got to say, I want community, therefore I'm going to stick around. Practical obedience has spiritual ramifications. It's exactly the same in money. When we give, we're partnering with God to release spiritual breakthroughs. That's how it works. And I'll finish with this. Again, I've told this story many times before, but so radically challenged by the story of the guys at Bethel in California with Bill Johnson. And when I went eight years ago, they'd seen, in a term, they'd seen over 200 deaf ears opened. 200 deaf ears opened. I thought, wow, what is this? I mean, I've not seen a community like this. What is going on? And I heard Bill Johnson speak once, and he said, really, I would put it down to two things that have caused us to be a, a house of such spiritual breakthrough in the miraculous. He said, first is I decided that I would never change the subject from the miraculous supernatural working of God. That is the first key to why we're seeing so much. But he said the second key was we committed ourselves to a lifestyle of radical generosity financially. And he said, we just started to give money away wherever we could to bless other people. And he said, we discovered that actually generosity is the key to revival. I was so challenged by that. I thought, Jesus, make me like that. Make me someone who partners with you to release everything that you've promised that we can have. Acts is an invitation.
It's an invitation to each one of us. Come in. And as we give our money now, just I want to encourage us to just celebrate. Celebrate the grace of God in the gospel. Celebrate that we get to be a countercultural people that breaks the spirit of greed in our culture. Let's celebrate that God is our partner, that we are not just slaves, but we are sons and daughters. We get to partner with Breakthrough Baby. This is good news. This is really, really good news. I want to say as well, if you're sitting here and you have zero desire to give, make this an opportunity to ask him, Father, I want to want to give. Because, you know, sometimes we are in the position we think, you know, I don't want to give. I've got no interest in giving. Well, your father knows that already. He doesn't judge you, but he does invite you in to be changed. And so I want to encourage you to make it your prayer, Father, I want to want to give like you have given your son. Make that your prayer.